Volume the First, Chapter Three of Caleb Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Darvinia. Caleb Williams by William Godwin. Volume the First, Chapter Three. From the moment he entered upon the execution of this purpose, dictated as it probably was by an unaffected principle of duty, his misfortunes took their commencement. All I have further to state of his history is the uninterrupted persecution of a malignant destiny, a series of adventures that seemed to take their rise in various accidents, but pointing to one termination. Him they overwhelmed with an anguish he was of all others least qualified to bear, and these waters of bitterness, extending beyond him, poured their deadly venom upon others. I being myself the most unfortunate of their victims. The person in whom these calamities originated was Mr. Falkland's nearest neighbour, a man of estate equal to his own, by name Barnabas Tyrrell. This man one might at first have supposed of all others least qualified from instruction, or inclined by the habits of his life, to disturb the enjoyments of a mind so richly endowed as that of Mr. Falkland. Mr. Tyrrell might have passed for a true model of the English squire. He was early left under the tuition of his mother, a woman of narrow capacity, and who had no other child. The only remaining member of the family, it may be necessary to notice, was Miss Emily Melville, the orphan daughter of Mr. Tyrrell's paternal aunt, who now resided in the family mansion, and was wholly dependent on the benevolence of its proprietors. Mrs. Tyrrell appeared to think that there was nothing in the world so precious as her hopeful Barnabas. Everything must give way to his accommodation and advantage. Every one must yield the most servile obedience to his commands. He must not be teased or restricted by any forms of instruction, and of consequence his proficiency, even in the arts of writing and reading, was extremely slender. From his birth he was muscular and sturdy and, confined to the ruelle of his mother, he made much such a figure as the whelp lion that a barbarian might have given for a lap-dog to his mistress. But he soon broke loose from these trammels, and formed an acquaintance with the groom and the gamekeeper. Under their instruction he proved as ready a scholar as he had been indocile and restive to the pedant who held the office of his tutor. It was now evident that his small proficiency in literature was by no means to be ascribed to want of capacity. He discovered no contemptible sagacity and quick-wittedness in the science of horse-flesh, and was eminently expert in the arts of shooting, fishing, and hunting. Nor did he confine himself to these, but added the theory and practice of boxing, cudgel-play, and quarter-staff. These exercises added tenfold robustness and vigour to his former qualifications. His stature, when grown, was somewhat more than five feet ten inches in height, and his form might have been selected by a painter as a model for that hero of antiquity, whose prowess consisted in felling an ox with his fist and devouring him at a meal. Conscious of his advantage in this respect, he was insupportably arrogant, tyrannical to his inferiors, and insolent to his equals. 
the activity of his mind, being diverted from the genuine field of utility and distinction, showed itself in the rude tricks of an overgrown lubber. Here, as in all his other qualifications, he rose above his competitors, and if it had been possible to overlook the callous and unrelenting disposition which they manifested, one could scarcely have denied his applause to the invention these freaks displayed, and the rough, sarcastic wit with which they were accompanied. Mr. Tyrrell was by no means inclined to permit these extraordinary merits to rust in oblivion. There was a weekly assembly at the nearest market-town, the resort of all the rural gentry. Here he had hitherto figured to the greatest advantage as grand master of the coterie, no one having an equal share of opulence, and the majority, though still pretending to the rank of gentry, greatly his inferior in this essential article. The young men in this circle looked up to this insolent bashaw with timid respect conscious of the comparative eminence that unquestionably belonged to the powers of his mind, and he well knew how to maintain his rank with an inflexible hand. Frequently, indeed, he relaxed his features and assumed a temporary appearance of affableness and familiarity, but they found by experience that if any one, encouraged by his condescension, forgot the deference which Mr. Tyrrell considered as his due, he was soon taught to repent his presumption. It was a tiger that thought proper to toy with a mouse, the little animal every moment in danger of being crushed by the fangs of his ferocious associate. As Mr. Tyrrell had considerable copiousness of speech, and a rich but undisciplined imagination, he was always sure of an audience. His neighbours crowded round and joined in the ready laugh, partly from obsequiousness, and partly from unfeigned admiration. It frequently happened, however, that in the midst of his good humour, a characteristic refinement of tyranny would suggest itself to his mind. When his subjects, encouraged by his familiarity, had discarded their precaution, the wayward fit would seize him, a sudden cloud overspread his brow, his voice transform from the pleasant to the terrible and a quarrel of a straw immediately ensue with the first man whose face he did not like. The pleasure that resulted to others from the exuberant sallies of his imagination was therefore not unalloyed with sudden qualms of apprehension and terror. It may be believed that this despotism did not gain its final ascendancy without being contested in the outset, but all opposition was quelled with a high hand by this rural Antius. By the ascendancy of his fortune, and his character among his neighbours, he always reduced his adversary to the necessity of encountering him at his own weapons, and did not dismiss him without making him feel his presumption through every joint in his frame. The tyranny of Mr. Tyrrell would not have been so patiently endured, had not his colloquial accomplishments perpetually come in aid of that authority which his rank and prowess originally obtained. The situation of our squire with the fair was still more enviable than that which he maintained among persons of his own sex. Every mother taught her daughter to consider the hand of Mr. Tyrrell as the highest object of her ambition. Every daughter regarded his athletic form and his acknowledged prowess with a favourable eye. 
a form eminently athletic, is perhaps always well proportioned, and one of the qualifications that women are early taught to look for in the male sex is that of a protector. As no man was adventurous enough to contest his superiority, so scarcely any woman in this provincial circle would have scrupled to prefer his addresses to those of any other admirer. His boisterous wit had peculiar charms for them, and there was no spectacle more flattering to their vanity than seeing this Hercules exchange his club for a distaff. It was pleasing to them to consider that the fangs of this wild beast, the very idea of which inspired trepidation into the boldest hearts, might be played with by them with the utmost security. Such was the rival that fortune, in her caprice, had reserved for the accomplished Falkland. This untamed, though not undiscerning brute, was found capable of destroying the prospects of a man the most eminently qualified to enjoy and to communicate happiness. The feud that sprung up between them was nourished by concurring circumstances, till it attained a magnitude difficult to be paralleled. And because they regarded each other with a deadly hatred, I have become an object of misery and abhorrence. The arrival of Mr. Falkland gave an alarming shock to the authority of Mr. Tyrrell in the village assembly, and in all scenes of indiscriminate resort. His disposition by no means inclined him to withhold himself from scenes of fashionable amusement, and he and his competitor were like two stars fated never to appear at once above the horizon. The advantages Mr. Falkland possessed in the comparison are palpable, and had it been otherwise, the subjects of his rural neighbour were sufficiently disposed to revolt against his merciless dominion. They had hitherto submitted from fear, and not from love, and if they had not rebelled, it was only for want of a leader. Even the ladies regarded Mr. Falkland with particular complacence. His polished manners were peculiarly in harmony with feminine delicacy. The sallies of his wit were far beyond those of Mr. Tyrrell in variety and vigour, in addition to which they had the advantage of having their spontaneous exuberance guided and restrained by the sagacity of a cultivated mind. The graces of his person were enhanced by the elegance of his deportment and the benevolence and liberality of his temper were upon all occasions conspicuous. It was common indeed to Mr. Tyrrell, together with Mr. Falkland, to be little accessible to sentiments of awkwardness and confusion. But for this Mr. Tyrrell was indebted to a self-satisfied effrontery and a boisterous and overbearing elocution, by which he was accustomed to discomfit his assailants while Mr. Falkland, with great ingenuity and candour of mind, was enabled by his extensive knowledge of the world and acquaintance with his own resources, to perceive almost instantaneously the proceeding it most became him to adopt. Mr. Tyrrell contemplated the progress of his rival with uneasiness and aversion. He often commented upon it to his particular confidence, as a thing altogether inconceivable, Mr. Falkland he described as an animal that was beneath contempt. Diminutive and dwarfish in his form, he wanted to set up a new standard of human nature, adapted to his miserable condition. 
He wished to persuade people that the human species were made to be nailed to a chair, and to pore over books. He would have them exchange those robust exercises which make us joyous in the performance, and vigorous in the consequences, for the wise labour of scratching our heads for a rhyme, and counting our fingers for a verse. Monkeys were as good men as these. A nation of such animals would have no chance with a single regiment of the old English votaries of beef and pudding. He never saw anything come of learning but to make people foppish and impertinent, and a sensible man would not wish a worse calamity to the enemies of his nation than to see them run mad after such pernicious absurdities. It was impossible that people could seriously feel any liking for such a ridiculous piece of goods as this outlandish foreign-made Englishman. But he knew very well how it was. It was a miserable piece of mummery that was played only in spite of him. But God forever blast his soul if he were not bitterly revenged upon them all. If such were the sentiments of Mr. Tyrrell, his patience found ample exercise in the language which was held by the rest of his neighbours on the same subject. While he saw nothing in Mr. Falkland but matter of contempt, they appeared to be never weary of recounting his praises. Such dignity, such affability, so perpetual an attention to the happiness of others, such delicacy of sentiment and expression, learned without ostentation, refined without foppery, elegant without effeminacy, perpetually anxious to prevent his superiority from being painfully felt, it was so much the more certainly felt to be real, and excited congratulation instead of envy in the spectator. It is scarcely necessary to remark that the revolution of sentiment in this rural vicinity belongs to one of the most obvious features of the human mind. The rudest exhibition of art is at first admired, till a nobler is presented, and we are taught to wonder at the facility with which before we had been satisfied. Mr. Tyrrell thought that there would be no end to the commendation, and expected when their common acquaintance would fall down and adore the intruder. The most inadvertent expressions of applause inflicted upon him the torment of demons, he writhed with agony, his features became distorted, and his looks inspired terror. Such suffering would probably have soured the kindest temper. What must have been its effect upon Mr. Tyrrell's? Always fierce, unrelenting, and abrupt. The advantages of Mr. Falkland seemed by no means to diminish with their novelty. Every new sufferer from Mr. Tyrrell's tyranny immediately went over to the standard of his adversary. The ladies, though treated by their rustic swain with more gentleness than the men, were occasionally exposed to his capriciousness and insolence. They could not help remarking the contrast between these two leaders in the fields of chivalry, the one of whom paid no attention to any one's pleasure but his own, while the other seemed all good humour and benevolence. It was in vain that Mr. Tyrrell endeavoured to restrain the ruggedness of his character. His motive was impatience, his thoughts were gloomy, and his courtship was like the pawings of an elephant. It appeared as if his temper had been more human while he indulged in its free bent than now that he sullenly endeavoured to put fetters upon its excesses. 
Among the ladies of the village assembly already mentioned, there was none that seemed to engage more of the kindness of Mr. Tyrrell than Miss Hardingham. She was also one of the few that had not yet gone over to the enemy, either because she really preferred the gentleman who was her oldest acquaintance, or that she conceived from calculation this conduct best adapted to ensure her success in a husband. One day, however, she thought proper, probably only by way of experiment, to show Mr. Tyrrell that she could engage in hostilities, if he should at any time give her sufficient provocation. She so adjusted her manoeuvres as to be engaged by Mr. Falkland as his partner for the dance of the evening, though without the smallest intention on the part of that gentleman, who was unpardonably deficient in the sciences of anecdote and matchmaking, of giving offence to his country neighbour. Though the manners of Mr. Falkland were condescending and attentive, his hours of retirement were principally occupied in contemplations too dignified for scandal, and too large for the altercations of a vestry, or the politics of an election borough. A short time before the dances began, Mr. Tyrrell went up to his fair inamorata, and entered into some trifling conversation with her to fill up the time, as intending in a few minutes to lead her forward to the field. He had accustomed himself to neglect the ceremony of soliciting beforehand a promise in his favour, as not supposing it possible that any one would dare dispute his behests, and, had it been otherwise, he would have thought the formality unnecessary in this case, his general preference to Miss Hardingham being notorious. While he was thus engaged, Mr. Falkland came up. Mr. Tyrrell always regarded him with aversion and loathing. Mr. Falkland, however, slided in a graceful and unaffected manner into the conversation already begun, and the animated ingenuousness of his manner was such as might for the time have disarmed the devil of his malice. Mr. Tyrrell probably conceived that his accosting Miss Hardingham was an accidental piece of general ceremony, and expected every moment when he would withdraw to another part of the room. The company now began to be in motion for the dance, and Mr. Falkland signified as much to Miss Hardingham. "'Sir,' interrupted Mr. Tyrrell abruptly, "'that lady is my partner.' "'I believe not, sir. That lady has been so obliging as to accept my invitation.' "'I tell you, sir, no, sir.' I have an interest in that lady's affections, and I will suffer no man to intrude upon my claims. The lady's affections are not the subject of the present question. Sir, it is to no purpose to parley. Make room, sir. Mr. Falkland gently repelled his antagonist. Mr. Tyrrell, returned he with some firmness, let us have no altercation in this business. The master of the ceremonies is the proper person to decide in a difference of this sort, if we cannot adjust it. We can neither of us intend to exhibit our valour before the ladies, and shall therefore cheerfully submit to his verdict. Damn me, sir, if I understand. Softly, Mr. Tyrrell, I intended you no offence. But, sir, no man shall prevent my asserting that to which I have once acquired a claim." Mr. Falkland uttered these words with the most unruffled temper in the world, 
The tone in which he spoke had acquired elevation, but neither roughness nor impatience. There was a fascination in his manner that made the ferociousness of his antagonist subside into impotence. Miss Hardingham had begun to repent of her experiment, but her alarm was speedily quieted by the dignified composure of her new partner. Mr. Tyrrell walked away without answering a word. He muttered curses as he went, which the laws of honour did not oblige Mr. Falkland to overhear, and which, indeed, it would have been no easy task to have overheard with accuracy. Mr. Tyrrell would not, perhaps, have so easily given up his point, had not his own good sense presently taught him, that however eager he might be for revenge, this was not the ground he should desire to occupy. But, though he could not openly resent this rebellion against his authority, he brooded over it in the recesses of a malignant mind, and it was evident enough that he was accumulating materials for a bitter account, to which he trusted his adversary should one day be brought. End of chapter 3 of Volume the First